Uh, you can find tonight's reading on page 62 of the uh, Church Bibles. And we're starting from verse 22. So it's page 62, starting from verse 22 of chapter 5. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the, the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of the discouragement and hard labour. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brian, very much indeed. Let us bide and pray together. Uh, just before we do that, may I ask you if you would to keep your Bibles open. Uh, page 62, I think our reading began. So do please keep your Bible open and we will seek to look at its teaching together. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we do praise and thank you for your holy word. We praise you that your word is truth and it is treasure. And we pray that tonight you will speak to our hearts. We pray that you give us understanding. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you will help us to put it into practice in our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Israel, that is, the people of Israel, were in Egypt. And they are in big trouble. Egypt is now ruled by a pharaoh who knew nothing at all about Joseph. 
Joseph, the son of Jacob, who you remember had had such a tremendous ministry in Egypt, becoming prime minister of the whole country, he rescued them from famine, not just the Israelites, but uh, all the people. But the Pharaoh of Moses' day did not know that. Nor did he know about the special status that the Israelites were given in Egypt at that time. On the contrary, he enslaved the people. He would not let them go. He set them to work making bricks. A pretty thankless task, I think most of us would agree. Uh, And Israel was in great distress. The Lord saw this. And he sent Moses with Aaron to speak to Pharaoh. He did not meet with a positive response. Chapter 5, verse 1, refers to that time. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Uh, But the... Pharaoh was not going to fall for that. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And he didn't just leave it there, but uh, he made their situation considerably worse. And he did that by telling them that they weren't going to be given a consignment of straw to make these bricks with. You see, what had happened previously was the Israelites were there in their brick factory and so forth, and halfway through the day, uh, a lorry would come in, sort of beeping its horn, and would uh, give them a whole lorry load of straw, which was a terrific help to them, of course, because if they were given the straw, all they had to do was to add whatever you do add to straw to make bricks, and then they would make bricks and everything would be fine. But, oh no, Pharaoh's decided that's uh, all over. Read uh, from chapter 5, verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks. It's pretty unpleasant, isn't it? How long would it have taken them going round the place to dig up bits of straw from fields that had already been harvested and there hardly was any straw left? It was absolute grief for Israel, verse 14. Your servants... I'm sorry, no, it's verse 14. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? And his whole reaction to them was that what they were trying to do simply showed they were lazy, verse 17. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw and you must must, uh, make, produce your full quota of bricks. I mean, it's pretty vicious stuff, isn't it? What hope had they got, really, quite frankly, of being able to produce the same number of bricks when they had to spend half the day getting straw and digging it up? 
Israel knew when this happened that they were in serious trouble. Verse 19. The Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required from you each day. And this trouble that they were now in uh, really got to them. And it certainly did not endear Moses to them. In fact, they took it out on Moses. And that's where we come in on tonight's uh, section, chapter 5 and verse 20. Where it says, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And I've got three points for our study tonight. The first one is the rejection of Moses, that is, by the Israelites. The rejection of Moses. Second is the revelation of God's name. And the third is the reaffirmation of the promises. So first of all, then, the rejection of Moses by the Israelites. Now, Moses and Aaron... Uh, left Pharaoh, to whom they'd just been demanding that he let Israel go, they left Pharaoh, and within a very short time, the Israelites had found them. When they left Pharaoh, the uh, people who'd been, the overseers, who'd been given this lecture about all these bricks and this straw, they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. Uh, Sorry, I'm so sorry, they found, yeah, when they left Pharaoh, Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And it wasn't a joyful reunion. On the contrary, what they met was a hostile crowd, ready to condemn them. You notice in verse 21, they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And so instead of seeking the Lord, the Israelites reject his messenger and become a, an unthreatening and uh, sorry, become a threatening and uh, ugly and a crowd. And this was really serious because, of course, this is a rejection of the one who was sent to be their deliverer. This was, in effect, a rejection of the gospel. Oh, it's typical them, we say. I mean, the Israelites, they're always rejecting the gospel, aren't they? Uh, yes, they are. But let us realize that you and I are well capable of doing the same. I mean, when things go well, it's absolutely fine, isn't it? We walk along the road feeling happy and a smile on our faces and we think of that lovely cup of coffee we're about to have in a couple of hours. You know, and it's all very nice uh, when things are going well. But when things are going badly, then we're tempted to drift from the gospel, which has saved us, and from the Lord Jesus, our deliverer. And not only did the Israelites do that, but so does Moses. If you look at verses 22-23, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. 
See, what Moses is saying there, to be honest with you, is not much better than the Israelites, is it? You haven't achieved anything. You've brought trouble on the people. You haven't rescued your people in the least. Moses' complaint can be summed up, as a matter of fact, in one word, one small word. I thought someone might like to tell us what it is. In one small word um, that I did read just a moment ago. Uh, anyone want to tell me what it is? I mean, I know this isn't a family service and we haven't got lots of children sitting around here this, this evening, but uh, anyone prepared to tell me the word that characterizes what... Uh, um, Moses said to God at that point why? why? thank you very much why is right, absolutely why have you brought this trouble on these people and why did you ever send me why, why, why a man called Kenneth Moyner was a consultant surgeon in a London hospital he wrote a book which I remember was quite good, but unfortunately I've lost it. But I do remember this bit. He's a keen Christian believer, and in his job as a surgeon, he saw an awful lot of suffering. And of course, he found that many people had all sorts of questions that they bombarded him with. And so he says to them, you may have many questions, you will have many questions, about your illness and its treatment. But the one question we must not ask is why? Why, Lord? Why have you allowed this in my life? That's the one question we should not ask. We're not going to get an answer of that for that until we get to glory. Then the Lord will give us all the answers we need. But for the present time, we won't have an answer. And someone may be conscious of a difficult development in their lives or a troublesome temptation that is really causing problems or a life-giving a life I'm sorry a life-changing not a life-giving a life-changing loss or a devastating diagnosis I mean it could be any of those things couldn't it and lots more besides but whatever it is which you find is getting to you at the present time. Let me encourage you, as I encourage myself, quite frankly, let us not waste time asking why, but take it to the Lord in prayer. Repent of questioning the goodness of God. Learn instead from the wrong steps that Moses and the Israelites took. So first point, the revelation of God's name. I'm sorry, that's the second point. Let's try again. The first point is the rejection of Moses by the Israelites. The second point is the revelation of God's name. Now ask yourself, I'm not going to ask this one publicly, but ask yourself, uh, when was the divine name made known? I mean, the Old Testament is a book of making things known, isn't it? When was the divine name made known? I mean, was it in Genesis or the Garden of Eden? or perhaps the exile, or, uh, if not that, the prophets. Or if we can't find it in the Old Testament, well, maybe we should be looking in the New. Well, actually, we have the answer to the question, when and how was God's, God's name revealed? We find it here 
in Exodus 6. Let me read verses 2 and 3. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So, the answer to our question, when was God's name revealed, is that it was made known in the days of Moses, when God's people were in slavery. You might say that's surprising. We might have expected such an important revelation as the name of God to have been made when Israel was really strong and powerful. But no, God chose, the moment God chose was one when Israel was weak and in slavery. Now, I need to explain, of course, uh, there was another name used by the Lord since Abraham's day. It wasn't that he was nameless through that 400 years. Uh, that name was El Shaddai, God Almighty. This name spoke of his mighty power. Uh, and in fact, if you look at uh, verse 1, you see two references there to my mighty hand, uh, where the Lord is speaking to Moses and says, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And that is the uh, emphasis of this name, El Shaddai, God's mighty power. It's a great name, but it omits reference to God's commitment to his people as his possession. Whereas that is strongly implied by the name which is now being revealed, which is the name Yahweh, uh, spelt Y-H-W-H, -H, and with an A and an E inserted there. That name meant the Lord, or I am. Uh, not made known until Moses' day, but in Moses' day it was made known. You see, that's what it's saying here in this verse 3. Uh, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. So God did communicate that with them, but all the time it was clear that something was missing, the completion of this revelation of the name of God. And note that uh, I am, the name I am, or the longer version, I am who I am, and the Lord, the, the name the Lord and the name I am who I am, these are one and the same name. It's a little bit complicated, this, I'm aware of that. But uh, there, God has only one name to be the covenant name. And that name may be translated the Lord, or it may be translated I am. Both ways work, because the uh, Hebrew, which is not something I've ever been capable of studying, I confess, but Hebrew, the meaning all depends on exactly where you put the vowels. So you've got the consonants, but where you put the A and the E uh, gives an indication of meaning. 
And actually, if, you've, if your fingers can just do a little bit of walking and go back to chapter 3, back to chapter 3, uh, where God speaks to Moses personally, a personal revelation, and then I'm going to look at the footnote there. So first of all, the personal revelation in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 3. Uh, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? I think we had this last week. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And if you look down at the... uh, uh, the cross well, they're not cross-references so much here, they're notes, tiny notes. If you look down the bottom of that column, where it says uh, D15, the Hebrew word for Lord sounds like and may be related to the Hebrew for I am in verse 14. So, what we have in Yahweh is the covenant name, the name that can be translated both I am and the Lord. And I want to make a suggestion, because I'm not sure one can prove it. I mean, this, this verse 6 about how I didn't... Uh, this verse three, 3, that's right. Uh, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. This is the thing that causes theological... Bods, uh, who like writing long essays, to, to write very long essays, because surely someone says, but he did make himself known. I mean, look at verse um, 13 and 14. Uh, well, we've looked at that just a moment ago. But uh, God says, I am who I am. This is what you'll say to the Israelites uh, in answer to the question, what is his name? So why is there that emphasis? Why, why does it, how is it that it has a particular meaning that means that he didn't reveal himself to them using that name? Uh, and I think the answer is that this name, the covenant name, is absolutely focused on God's relationship to his people. He's made them his own people. And the key to this relationship is the covenant, the certain agreement and lifelong commitment uh, between the people and the Lord. And if that is right, well, then there's a couple of verses that would seem to confirm that in verses 4 and 5. They both refer to the covenant. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. So there's the first one. I established my covenant with them. And then the second one. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. So the Lord is saying he's remembered. The key thing about their relationship, what's that? It's the covenant. And he is the one who established that relationship. And how did he do that? He did it with a covenant. And the point, therefore, is that central to their relationship between God and his people is the covenant. 
So now the revelation of the divine name, of God's name, comes with it the knowledge of who the people are. See, they can only come to know who they are if it's been made known to them who the Lord is. Then they can know who they are. But without that, they're in confusion, aren't they? I don't know if you notice. I'm sure you have, but identity. Identity is a hot topic today, is it not? Even among God's people, i.e. Christian believers, uh, if you are a Christian believer, then you need to realize, as I'm sure you do, but you, we want to proclaim, that the most important thing about you, or about someone, let's make it third person, someone who is a Christian, the most important thing about that person is not where they live or the job they do, whether or whether they are married or single, or what family they have, or, dare one say it, uh, the most important thing about them is not their sexuality. Though some people, alas, who want to make a stand on that sort of thing, uh, always imply that it is vastly important about them and their identity, but it isn't. What matters in their identity is whether or not they are in Jesus Christ. So, for example, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been made part of his family, in other words. That's what really matters. That's what we should be rejoicing in. That's what we should praise the Lord for. So first then, the rejection of Moses. Second, the revelation of the name of the Lord. And third, the reaffirmation of the promise. The reaffirmation of the promise. Now, the Israelites are still refusing to listen to Moses. Verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. And in verse 12, uh, Moses makes another excuse. We had, I think, five last week, uh, a couple of chapters back. Well, there's another one here in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, because the Lord just said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips. Oh dear, oh dear. We have that we are a, a mental picture of Moses as a great leader, and indeed he was a great leader, but he could be dreadfully feeble. So we're, we're rather the same, are we not? Um, but the focus here is not on Moses, but on the Lord, who actually is being incredibly patient and who is applying the consequences of the covenant to the situation of the Israelites. And there's one phrase which comes several times in this section. And uh, because we managed to get an answer last time, I'd like you to tell me if you can uh, give me this two-word phrase, which is highly relevant to the situation of the uh, Israelites and the Lord's relationship to them. Can anybody give us an indication of what little phrase you might be thinking of? 
Uh, well, verse 67, what, what about it? Uh, oh, sorry, where are we looking? Yes, thank you very much indeed. Verses 6 to 8. Verses 6 to 8, you've got plenty of, plenty of possibilities. Do we have an offer? Andrew, I th- I, I'm, going to, I'm not going to ask Andrew or Edward. I think it's unfair. Uh, anybody else? What? I will. That's right, I will. I will. It's a lovely little phrase, that. The Lord's speaking about what he will do. There's three occurrences in verse 6. I will bring you out. I will free you from being slaves. And I will redeem you. Then there's two in verse 7. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. And incidentally, then you will know that that is so. Uh, And then two in verse 8. I will bring you to the land I swore. I will give it to you as a possession. Tremendous stuff, isn't it? I was piling up with these these promises. Uh, And there's such a variety to them. Indeed, in many ways, verses 6 to 8 are the heart of the passage, I think. Uh, It emphasizes that it is the covenant Lord who is speaking. I am the Lord comes at the beginning of this paragraph, 6 to 8. So verse 6, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Verse 8, I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. He is the Lord and he is going to give to Israel all these good things. And it's a a fabulous passage. All the blessings of the covenant will be theirs. I mean, there are seven I wills in those three verses we've just looked at. Uh, And they will become certainties. They will become certainties. At the moment, the people of Israel say, well, our situation is anything like that. But one day, it's going to be absolutely certain. And the fact that it's future is that what makes it certain because several years down the track it's going to be impossible for Pharaoh who by then will be soundly dead to do anything to stop the Israelites getting what God has promised them no, in the future they can be certain the fulfilment will be theirs and the gospel works in the same way Let's just say, we will encounter difficulties in life. We will encounter them. Difficulties now. And sometimes these difficulties are pretty awful and pretty painful. And we should not be surprised. We're not told that they'll be eliminated in this life. They won't be. So, that's the situation now. But then... On that day, when the Lord Jesus returns, in Christ, all those difficulties will be removed. And we will experience the fulfillment of all his gracious promises. Forgiveness, peace, joy, endurance, fellowship, health, future glory, and the grace of God. All of them are absolutely certain And we can rejoice in that, in what is going to be ours on that day. But may I ask you, are you certain yourself? I mean, are you sure and confident that you have eternal life in Christ? That you have forgiveness? And that you know you have? 
Or are you sort of vaguely hopeful? I mean, it's possible to be like that, isn't it? And someone says to us, are you sure you have eternal life? And you sort of, um, sort of shift from one, shoe to one, one foot to the other and say, well, um, I, I really hope so. I really do, I really do hope so. And the person says, yeah, but that wasn't what I was asking you. Do you have assurance? Do you know that you have eternal life? You see, we are meant to be sure. This is the point. We are meant to be sure. We're not meant to be in a situation of sort of doubt. Um, someone put it like this. Is your experience of Christ and the Gospel, is your experience a hope-so or a no-so, K-N-O-W, a hope-so experience or a no-so experience that I can say, and you can say, if we're Christian believers, we can humbly say that we know that we have forgiveness. We know that we're going to go to glory one day. We know that he's going to bring us through whatever it is that we're having to wrestle with and struggle with at the moment. The Lord will bring us through and he wants us to have assurance. And therefore, let each of us ask ourselves, do I have certainty of forgiveness and eternal life and a glorious future? Because in Christ we should have. Remember, if we reject Christian assurance... Uh, we might begin to think that his death is insufficient uh, or that his death was inadequate in some way. So it couldn't actually deliver to me forgiveness and a place in glory uh, because for some reason or other I'm I'm not quite sure. I want to be humble and say perhaps. It's not humble to say perhaps. It is disobedient we are told to believe and trust in Christ. Let's take a couple of lines from this great statement to Moses in the, uh, the seven I wills here in chapter 6. Um, so verse 6 has the phrase, I will free you. I will free you. That must have been an encouragement to the Israelites. It's a promise though for who? For you and me, if we're Christian believers. So Jesus said, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's have another one. Um, I will redeem you, I've just noted down. And that's also in verse 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That's a powerful promise, isn't it? That must have made a difference to those Israelites. I mean, there they are complaining like mad, and Moses is handing over to them one promise after another and saying, this is terrific, isn't it? Uh, he's, going to, he's going to redeem us with mighty acts of, of judgment. Um, he's going to bring us to the land, verse 8. Uh, and, well, so on, because there are the other four there. Um, there are these promises. And that one that I was just looking at, I will redeem you, that also is a promise for us, is it not? So uh, if we know Ephesians, Ephesians 1 verse 7 states this, In him we have redemption through his blood. Uh, not uh, let us have. You see, some people have misrendered this, this phrase in Ephesians 1 7. 
in him, let, let's, have, let's have assurance through his blood. It, it doesn't work like that. It is a certainty to be made clear. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Well, dear friends, we, we, uh, I think we've got to conclude, I'm afraid. Um, but you can take this passage home and find New Testament fulfillment of these seven I wills. be a good uh, practical exercise to do over the next couple of days. And uh, if you get your concordance, and if you haven't got one, you can use Bible Gateway. And if you don't know how to do that, I'm sure Edward will explain. Um, but uh, 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 there we can, we can identify in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament promise in that paragraph. And that's a terrific thing to do. Let's be sure, as New Testament believers, that we reject the unbelief of the Israelites that we rejoice in the one who has made himself known to us in Jesus, and that we assert with joy that all God's promises are reaffirmed in him. For those promises were sufficient to get the people of Israel into the promised land. But more than that, dear friends, his promises are sufficient to bring us to glory, to bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do want to thank and praise you for these wonderful promises that we've just been looking at. We praise you that they are sufficient to get us to glory. And we pray that you will help us so to trust and believe that these promises may be ours to your praise and glory. Amen.